All right, so I'm very excited about uh, the next six weeks as we enter this series, How to Pray. Um, I think it's going to be an important series for our church. I, I think I, I've looked at this series on the calendar, and I'm excited and, and kind of have this, this anticipation of what God might do and hopefully turning our church in, into a church that prays uh, more fervently than, than maybe we have in the past. Um, but before we talk too much about prayer, I want to take a, a quick detour and I want to talk about something else that is very important in my life, and that is coffee. Any, uh, any coffee fans in the house? Anybody love coffee? Okay, I was expecting maybe a few more hands based on how many of us come in late to service after making sure we get our coffee. And I say us because I do that as well. No shame, no shade in that. Uh, but coffee for me is one of the key ways that I know uh, that God is good. Amen? I mean, it is uh, with a, a cup of hot coffee in the morning, I know God's mercies are new every morning, right? It is the stuff of heaven. Um, now, if you, uh, like me, uh, love coffee, then you're probably not at all surprised that people are very particular um, and have a lot of opinions about how they take their coffee. In fact, I don't know if any of you have seen, a few months ago, there was this chart uh, that was going around on social media where people were talking about how they take their coffee. And these are kind of the, the different gradients of cream and sugar and how people enjoy their coffee. Now, I just need to say, as we get started with this, this is a safe space. No one's going to judge you on how you take your coffee. God's grace is good, and, uh, and we're not going to cast, you know, side glances at anyone in the room if they take their coffee differently than us. We just need to say that. But I'd love to take a poll and see how Waterstone takes their coffee in the morning. So uh, we'll kind of start in the, the easy middle, kind of the typical coffee drinker, the, the D4, D3 range. Anyone kind of in that space? That, that's kind of what I see is like two creams, two sugars, you're good to go. You just need a little bit of sweetness to cut the, the the coffee bitterness. Anybody in that camp? Sorry, I didn't see the hands. Okay, we got a few. All right, no shame. That's great. Um, all right, how about anyone, uh, let's say top left, kind of the A1, B2 range. Anyone willing to admit they go there? It's okay. You can confess your sins. It's okay. Again, I said safe space, no judgment. Um, but I do have to tell you, okay, we got someone proud in the back. That's, yeah, love it. Okay, I do have to tell you though, if you kind of fall in, in that quadrant, um, I hate to break it to you. You don't actually like coffee. Um, you don't. <laughs> you like coffee-flavored milk. That's what you like. And so you should maybe just drink that. I don't know. Um, now let's go all the way down to the, the other side, kind of that F5, F6 range. Anyone in that kind of range? Just a little bit of cream, a little bit of sugar maybe. Any purists in the room? Just like straight F6. You're like black is the way to go. Okay, that's me. You're my people. We drink coffee the way God intended us to drink coffee, right? That's how it's supposed to be. Um, when I wake up in the morning and I have my cup of coffee, I want the blacker the better. I mean, if I look into my mug and it is just a black hole, um, then that is where it is at. Uh, now, here's the thing. What in the world does this conversation about coffee have to do with prayer? Well, I'll try to see if I can connect the dots for us. Because here's the, the truth. How we take our coffee and, and the importance of coffee in our lives, uh, it, it actually has a lot of importance. I mean, if you think about some of the advertising that goes on around coffee, for many of us, we would say our day does not begin until we have had a cup of coffee, right? 
I mean, there are signs and mugs that say things like life happens, but coffee helps, right? Coffee is what gets us through the day. And I saw the other day is one of those signs that, that said, um, let me see if I can get this right. Uh, but first coffee. Uh, and then there was another one that I thought was really interesting. It says, all I need today is a little bit of coffee and a whole lot of Jesus. And while that is kind of a trite and a little bit cliche, it actually kind of struck home with me because I was like, oh, dang. Do I think my day is more dependent on coffee than Jesus? And if I'm honest with you, I'm someone, I mean, I try to get up in the morning and I have my cup of coffee and I have a a little time with Jesus. But if I'm really honest with you, what gets me out of bed in the morning is often my excitement or my anticipation about the, the coffee pot in the kitchen more than my time with Jesus. It's almost secondary. It's almost the the afterthought. What gets me out of bed is not my time with Jesus, but this excitement about coffee. I need my coffee. And if we're honest with ourselves, I, I think in me confessing that as a pastor that I struggle with prayer, many of us can relate. When we look at our prayer lives and we look at the way we long to pray and be close to God, many of us would find that lacking. We, we want to pray, we want to be with God, but many of us would say, it's not quite where I, I hope it would be, or I wish I prayed more, more often, I, I wish I had more deep uh, and intimate times of prayer, and it's kind of just prayers like praying with the kids before they go to bed and before we eat as a family. And that's the, kind of the extent of our prayer, and we long for something more than that. And yet, when it actually comes to praying, there's so many things that get in our way. There's so many things that that distract us from prayer. Now, usually when the church or or when pastors talk about a series like prayer and and, and especially one titled How to Pray, we come about it from a very basic strategy of you're not praying enough, you need to pray more, and here are the three steps you can follow to make sure that you have the prayer life you've always longed for. The trouble with that is it doesn't actually get to the heart of the issue. You see, we could have a long list of reasons why we don't pray. For many of us, it's that we're just simply too tired to get up in the morning, or or we try to pray at night, but we're too tired, and so we fall asleep in the middle of our prayers. For many of us, we just have too many kids. Let's be honest. Two was enough. You could still pray when you had two kids, but three, that was just too many, right? For many of us, it's, it's that we're just too busy. We're too distracted. We have too much going on, and trying to find the time to pray in our day, it's just hard to come by. And for some of us, let's be honest, Netflix is awesome. There are great TV shows on, and it's easy to get caught up in binge watching, and before you know it, all your time is going to the new TV show, or the the great British baking show, and you've missed any time with Jesus in your day. But but here's the truth. None of those reasons, none of those answers to the question about why we struggle to pray actually get to the heart of the issue. Because the heart of the issue, I believe, for many of us is, is not about time or busyness or distractions or things going on in our life. It simply comes down to desire. What do we long for? And if you're like me, you wake up in the morning and, and a cup of coffee can hold more sway over you than encountering the living God. The question for us is, why is that? 
See, I think for many of us, we want a, a deeper prayer life, and we think if we could just cut some things out of our life, then we would actually pray more. But the truth is that the reason why we struggle to pray for those of us who do is not because of the things in our life. It's because we do not have a deep enough desire, a deep enough longing for the things of God. And there are things in our life that keep us from a deeper desire of God. I would think most of us in this room or whether you're watching online, you want to encounter the living God. The question is, what keeps us from encountering him? And so as we begin this series on prayer, my goal today is not to say you're not praying enough, you need to pray more, and here are the three steps on how you can do it. My goal is, is my hope, my desire is that we, the people of Waterstone, that, that through this time together today, God would begin to cultivate in us a longing and a desire for him. Because I think that the, if we desire him above all other things, we'll see that that begins to affect our prayer life. And so we're going to begin today with a, a simple verse, just the first verse of the Lord's Prayer. And what, it's important for you to know that, that often when people feel this pressure to pray more, they feel this pressure to, to engage with God more, that, that story goes back to the beginning of time. When Jesus teaches the disciples to pray, the Lord's Prayer is actually designed to alleviate much of the pressure, much of the, the stipulations, much of the routine, much of the rhythm that we try to create around prayer. Jesus is trying to kind of break down some of our paradigms and give us a model for prayer where we can encounter God. It's amazing how much the language of the Lord's Prayer is invitational. And what we need to understand is that when Jesus teaches us to pray, he is inviting us to something. And so the first verse of the Lord's Prayer is simply this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And when we say the words, our Father, when Jesus teaches us that that, that is how we should begin our prayers, what we need to understand is, is that word father, Abba, is a very, very fascinating word in scripture. And what's actually interesting about this word, and, and if you were to look at this prayer in the original language, the first word in the prayer is not actually our, it's father. Jesus is, is placing this relationship as the most important thing that is going on in this prayer. Jesus is, is giving us access to God as father. He's saying when you pray, he is inviting us into the space, the relationship that Jesus knows with the Father. He's giving us access to that relationship. And what you need to understand is this is a complete paradigm shift from how God has interacted with his people up until this point. You see, in the Old Testament, there's about seven times where God is referred to as Father, and it's more metaphor than relational. And what Jesus is doing in this moment is, is he is shifting the paradigm of our relationship with God. He is bringing God close and proximate. Prayer, praying to God as Father, is an invitation to intimacy with God. It's fascinating that when Jesus prays again and again in the New Testament, the words he uses is, my Father, my Father. And when he teaches his followers, his disciples to pray, he invites them into that same relationship. 
It's as if because of Jesus' relationship with God as Father, he gives us access to God in that intimate way, completely shifting the paradigms. If you think about it, no other religion in the world refers to their God as Father. And you think about people that that maybe don't believe and they, they use God's name and they even take God's name in vain. They'll never call God by his name Father. Is a unique relationship with the people of God and an invitation to intimacy with God that Jesus gives us access to. But here's the truth. For many of us, that invitation is more frightening than inviting. For many of us, the thought of being intimately connected, intimately known by God is actually quite terrifying. Because many of us are living ashamed of ourselves. You see, the trouble with with intimacy is that it requires honesty. It requires exposure. It requires vulnerability. When we talk about being intimate with another person or, or with God, it is allowing them to see us for who we really are. And for many of us, there's nothing more frightening than people seeing who we actually are. And I think many of us, we're living with this shame about things in our past, things that we've done, things that have been done to us, and we live ashamed of ourselves, and so we are afraid of this invitation to experience God intimately as Father. We think there are pieces of ourselves that we have to hide from Him, things that we have to hold on to that if God really saw, He would never actually accept. And so this invitation is frightening because it it means giving him access to those things. For some of us, it is the hardest thing in the world to believe that God might actually like us. For some of us in this room, when we picture coming before God in prayer, we, we picture his face scowling and looking at us disapprovingly and disappointed and frustrated. And yet for people who are in Christ Jesus, people who who follow Jesus, Jesus is saying that we have access to God as Father. My fear is that that many of us who are living with this shame, this fear of being intimately connected with God, that, that it's affecting our prayer life because we have forgotten the truth of the gospel. And when Jesus invites us to call God Father, he's inviting us to remember who God is and what he has done that our relationship with him is not taskmaster, but father. And we have to remind ourselves of that. And so Jesus invites us into this space where when we pray, we get to call God father, reminding us the truth that we are children of God, that we delight our heavenly father, that when he looks at us, there is joy in his gaze. Do you believe that? I had to remind myself of that this week and and was reminded this week of that when I listened to a a clip from a sermon that was getting shared uh, by a pastor named Alistair Begg. Now, Alistair Begg, he's talking about the gospel and this reminder that we all need for the gospel. And he, he kind of sets the story up in the same way many of us have heard the story of the gospel. And he says, imagine for a moment that you are before the pearly gates. You have died, you have gone to heaven, and you are getting access and entrance into heaven. 
And if the angels who are there guarding the entrance, and that's not really how it works, but for the sake of the story, let's pretend that there are angels there guarding entrance into heaven and they ask you, why are you here? Why should you be allowed in? So many of us live under the assumption, under the pressure of thinking that the answer to that question has something to do with the first person. We think, I have to say something I have done that I should be allowed into heaven because I have done this. Or even we go so far as to say, I believe this, I have faith. And we are living with this pressure that somehow our access, our entrance into heaven, our, our intimacy with the Father is dependent on us. But the only acceptable answer is not in the first person, it's in the third person because what Jesus has done I can have access to the Father because what he did. There's nothing that we could do, nothing that we have left undone that keeps us from access to the Father because of what Jesus has done. That is the truth of the gospel. Do we believe that? So many of us spend our lives huddled in shame because we forget and do not know how to believe this deep truth that God accepts us because of what Jesus has done. And Alistair Begg, he goes on to, to tell the story of, uh, just for imagine, if you think you have trouble getting to heaven, if you don't think you've done enough, if you don't think you believe enough, could you just imagine what it was like for the thief on the cross who hung next to Jesus when he gained access to heaven? When Jesus says, you will be with me in paradise, could you imagine the angels watching this scene play out, watching Jesus die on the cross, watching the man next to him mock him, ridicule him, abuse him, curse him, and then the next moment after after he dies, he is at the pearly gates. I mean, could you imagine the reaction in heaven? Wait, you, what, are you, what are you doing here? Like, I don't know. I, uh, I, don't, I don't think I should be here either. And there's so much confusion because the angel's like, of all people, okay, there, there's some sort of confusion. There's some sort of mess up. We'll get this all straightened out. Let's go get our supervisor. He'll ask you a few questions and we'll get you to where you belong because you, you clearly, this, I don't think this is the right place for you. So they go get the supervisor. They bring the supervisor back and the supervisor asks, okay, so clearly you're in the wrong place. Uh, we just have to get straightened out why you came here first so we can get you on your way. Uh, so could you just tell us like, what is your uh, doctrine of the justification by faith alone? The guy's like, I, I don't even know what that is. Like, okay, well, that doesn't make sense. So you have to have an answer to that. What? Okay, so what, well, just tell us, like, what do, you, what do you think about the scripture? I've never really read it. I mean, this is a guy who is a criminal, never been in a Bible study, never been baptized, and he is at the gate of heaven. They're, what? Ha so finally, in frustration, they ask, on what basis are you here? The man's only answer, the honest truth, is I'm here because the man on the middle cross said I could come. That is the truth of the gospel. There's nothing any of us have done nor anything that we can do that gains us access to God as Father. It's purely because Jesus has said we can come.
When we pray and when we come before God as Father, it's as if we come before the throne of God and, and Jesus takes his arm around us and says, there with me. Because of Jesus' relationship with the Father, we can call God Father. He invites us to that intimacy. And the question, I think, for many of us who live with this level of shame that, that keeps us from being intimately connected to God, that, that keeps us from wanting to pray to God, is what are we holding on to? What shame, what guilt is keeping us from access to the Father? What do we still think we have to hide from God? Are we willing to believe the gospel that it is because of what Christ has done? There is nothing we have to hide from our heavenly Father. Do we believe that? And the truth is, for, for many of us, we do have trouble praying. We have trouble with intimacy with God because we just don't think God likes us. And what we need to do is, is when we pray, our Heavenly Father is recognized again and again and again that Jesus Christ has taken care of our shame and our sin and that we can come to the Father in intimacy and vulnerability completely exposed and we do not have to hide. But I, I think for, for as many of us struggle to come before God in intimacy because of, of shame that we carry, I, I think there's also a number of us that, that come before God in prayer, and we have trouble praying, we have trouble with intimacy with God, because if we're honest, we're, we've almost kind of swung the other way. We're, we're kind of shameless before God. We, we almost have this familiarity, this chumminess with God. It's, it's kind of the, the old t-shirt, Jesus is my homeboy kind of feeling, where, where we just think God is, is, is kind of my my friend or someone that I can just come to and, and there's no sort of reverence. Some of us have trouble, I think, with our intimacy with prayer, not because we, we're ashamed. We understand God's love, but we have forgotten God's authority. And you, what you'll see in this term, Abba Father, is, is that there's a tension that, that we have to wrestle with. Prayer is an invitation to intimacy, yes, but it is also an invitation to obedience to the Father. When we call God Father, it is recognizing his authority. So many of us struggle in prayer because we've forgotten God's authority, and so we place ourselves in authority over our own lives. And it affects our intimacy with God because it leaves us in a place of disobedience. There's an interesting story of a pastor from a few years ago, 2007, he was flying into Jerusalem. And he saw a Jewish father uh, and a Jewish son in the bathroom at the airport. And he was after, it was a long trip. He was trying to get clean and he, was, he had been delayed. And so he was, he was trying to wash up. And then he sees this father wrestling with his young son who does not want to wash his hands. And if you've ever been around kids, there's a certain age where it is just impossible to get them cleaner, to think that they need to get clean. And if you've ever been to an to a airport bathroom, you know that walking out of that place, you, you probably don't need to wash your hands. You need a shower, right? And so this dad is trying to get his son to make sure that, that he's clean and safe and all of that, and the son is resistant. And the, the, the pastor watches this play out, this, this Jewish man with his son, and he notices that when the tension gets the most, that the father gets down on his knee before his son, and he says, son, 
when I want you to do something, I want you to call me Abba. And for this pastor in this moment, he'd never heard that term used in that way before. And it clicked for him in a moment that, that it's kind of like saying, yes, sir. It's kind of like saying, Father, I will obey you, that there's a reverence, a respect given when we use the term Abba. And for so many of us, we come before our Heavenly Father and, and we're, we're missing that reverence and that respect. And so we kind of come unashamedly and, and we come with, with everything that we've done and, and thinking that there's no sort of, of expectation from God that, that we as his children will be obedient to him. And I think for some of us, we, we're living in a state of disobedience and it is affecting our intimacy with God. This intimacy that he has invited us to. And I saw that play out a little bit this week with my dog, Jax. I love my dog, Jax. I've probably talked about him before. He's a big Bernese mountain dog. He's a big dog. He's like 100 pounds, sweetest thing. He's kind of a gentle giant. He's great with our daughter, Camden. He, he's a, just a, he loves to snuggle. He loves to be around people. Um, he's shameless in how much he wants to be around people and how much he wants to be petted. He's a good dog. He's well-trained. Um, but Jax is also a very dumb dog. And, and I say that with all the love in the world. Um, and also, uh, Side note for new parents, you have to be very careful if you call your dog dumb in front of your two-year-old child because she'll pick up on that real quick and she'll start repeating it and then your wife will be mad at you. So, so just steer clear of that a little bit. But Jax is a dumb dog and this is why I say Jax is a dumb dog. And this is so gross, so I'm sorry to share this, but it's true and hopefully helpful for us. But Jax is a dumb dog because Jax likes to eat his own poop disgusting. Now, we don't want Jax to eat his own poop. He is well-trained in every area of his life except for this thing. We have tried to train it out of him. We have tried to do all sorts of stuff to get him to not eat his own poop. He loves to eat his own poop. Now, here's what's weird about Jax eating his own poop, okay? Is that Jax will go into our yard, look for his poop, and then look back at the house. He knows that we don't want him to do this. He will look back at the house to see if we are watching watching to see if he can get away with it. And he's dumb enough that he just knows to look at the sliding glass door, but not the, the window over the kitchen sink. So he doesn't know we're there. So he thinks, okay, I'm going to get away with it. He starts eating his poop. And then we run out and we're like, stop doing that. Now here's why this matters. Even a dog feels the need to hide his disobedience. If a dog, I mean, isn't that our nature? When we are disobedient, we feel a need to hide. You see, our intimacy with God is not affected in disobedience because God leaves us. While I look at Jackson, I think you're disgusting. I don't want to pet you. I don't want to let you back in the house. God does not have that aversion for us, no matter what we do. But... When we live in disobedience, when we do not recognize the authority that God has, we hide ourselves inherently because we do not want God to see the things that we are still holding on to, the sins in our life that we're not ready to give up. And so we remove ourselves from intimacy with him. And so the question for us, again, is, is what, 
might be a, a sin in our lives? What is something that we're holding onto that is keeping us from the intimacy that Jesus has invited us into through prayer? If you're honest, yeah, I've been in those spaces where, where I know that there are things that I'm hanging on to that are keeping me from being my full self with God. And here's the truth. If we do not allow ourselves to be fully known by God, we will never allow ourselves to be fully loved by God. And so this invitation to intimacy and obedience allows us access to this Father who, who Jesus has given us access to, this relationship, but there's also this expectation as children that we would be honest with God about where we're at and trust that his grace and mercy, as we talked about earlier, is good to cover those things. Are we willing to release them? And finally, I think that, that some of us struggle with, with some of this because we, we struggle with intimacy with God, not just because of our shame and not just because of our, our sin or our disobedience, but we struggle with God because we, we kind of forget that God is God when we come to him in prayer. And, and that's why I think it's, it's so important that when we say our father, we, we, we recognize the second part of that statement that, that Jesus has, that in heaven, our father in heaven that there's a, when we say father, there's a proximity, there's a closeness, there's an intimacy, and yet there is a recognition that God is God and we are not. I don't know about any of you, but I'm not in heaven. God alone is in heaven. And so when we come before him and we pray, our father in heaven, there's this invitation to, to intimacy and to obedience, but there's a recognition that when we pray, we are giving God our allegiance. That we are bending the knee, we are surrendering ourselves to him because he is more than we are. And I think for, for many of us, we, we forget how big God actually is. We forget that, that when we are praying, we are not just praying to, to, to like a genie, but we are praying to the God of the universe that our Father is also King of the kingdom, creator of all things. And so we should come with intimacy and, and, and acceptance, but also there should be a reverence and a fear. And my fear is that we come to God and we have a lack of understanding of how great and powerful and majestic and wonderful and fearful he is. I mean, have you read stories in scripture where people come face to face with God? I mean, when people are ushered up into heaven and see God in heaven, they always fall down on their face. They're, they're speechless. They're shocked. I mean, the, the most common way of describing someone who encounters the living God is that they fall down as if they're dead. They've got nothing. Do we recognize that reverence, that authority, that, that when we come before God, he is the one in control of all things? And, and sometimes I think we make God too small when we come before him with our, our lists of requests. 
And, and I would like for you to imagine for just a moment, uh, any fans of the TV show The Crown on Netflix? Anyone? Okay, a few people. I haven't watched it very much, but I know there's this whole kind of culture that everybody's obsessed about the royal family and stuff. Can you imagine for a moment that you found access to the personal cell phone of the Queen of England? Queen Elizabeth herself, you found, and verifiably, it is her number. Would you ever, under any circumstances, call that number? I wouldn't. What in the world am I going to talk to the Queen of England about? How her tea was that morning? I mean, there's nothing. We have nothing in common. Nothing. She is in a completely different stratosphere. She's a completely different level than me. And yet the mystery of prayer is that God in his authority, in his sovereignty in heaven, allows us access to him, allows us to pick up the phone. And as we stumble through our prayers, as we don't know what to say, as we, we kind of just bumble our way through our day and, and try to give something, it's as if we're, we're actually talking to someone, the Queen of England, and, and she just says, it's okay, you can call back anytime. I mean, that is what we have in God the Father, someone who is infinitely more royal, infinitely more powerful than the queen, giving us access to themselves. Do we have the proper reverence when we go into that space? Do we believe that God is God? I think some of us, we struggle with our, our intimacy with God in our prayer life because we've forgotten his place and we've forgotten our place and we think we are the authority over our lives. And, and a humble suggestion, if this is you and, and you find yourself in this space, is a way to remind yourself of who God is and who you are is to simply kneel when you pray. Bend your knee in allegiance Surrender, position yourself physically to represent yourself spiritually. Remind yourself of who you are talking to. Our Father in heaven. What's fascinating to me about this first verse of the Lord's Prayer is that Jesus ends this statement by saying, Hallowed be your name. It's the only sentence in the Lord's Prayer that still feels like it's never been translated beyond the King James Version, right? Like, what in the world does hallowed mean? When do we ever use that language in our common vernacular? We don't. Hallowed, what is that? Well, here's a, a quick and brief definition of the word hallowed. Hallowed is an unreserved eagerness and urgency for God's name to be honored, adored, and glorified. When we pray, God, hallow your name. We are saying, God, make your name holy. And not because God's name isn't holy. It's, it's not just asking that, that God would, would somehow become more holy. It's asking that God would reveal himself to all people, including ourselves and others, that he alone is God that he would be exalted, that, that his mercy, his goodness, his justice, his love, his compassion would be made known to everyone. It is a prayer asking for God to be who he says he is, exalting him to his proper place and saying, God, show up. Show up in all the ways that we've seen you show up before. Continue to be God. 
The question for us is, is, do we have that kind of eagerness? Do we have that kind of craving, that longing, that desire to see God show up in our world? Is that the kind of fervor we're praying for? Are you like me? And a cup of coffee has more pull in the morning than that. See, when Jesus invites us into this space, this intimacy with the Father, when he invites us to exalt God and adore him, it is a promise that God is who he says he is and that God will do what he says he will do. That is why we praise him. And so I want us to to enter in now to a a space of prayer through worship. And we're gonna sing a a song many of us are, are familiar with, Mighty God, exalting the works that God has done and expectantly, eagerly, urgently praying for God to show up again and again and again in our lives and in the world. The question is, is that enough to get us out of bed in the morning? Is that enough to set our hearts on fire? Will we become a people, the people of Waterstone, who fervently seek to praise and honor God through prayer in that way? Would you please stand and worship?